guys. Welcome to season two of Pretty Depressed with me, Kim Crossman. We get deeper, darker, and dirtier this season. <laughs> These chats are unfiltered and they're not for sensitive ears. We do talk about drugs, sex, alcohol, death, grief, alternative therapy, labels, and suicide. And a bit of a disclaimer. None of my guests nor myself are in any way mental health professionals, so if you're not in a good place, then I do strongly advise that you seek out professional help. A huge thank you to all of my guests for being so vulnerable and for sharing so much. I gained so many lessons and tokens from these chats that I can apply to my own life, and I hope that you do too. If you want to join the community and the conversation, you can find us at Pretty Depressed on Instagram or on Facebook at Facebook forward slash Pretty Depressed Community. In this episode, I talk to Chloe Swarbrick. Now, you probably know her as the OK Boomer Girl or as one of the members of Parliament for the Green Party. I love this chat because we really do dive into everything. We talk about burnouts, drugs, opening a closed mind, therapy, family, and narratives that we tell ourselves that may not be entirely true yet shape our upbringing. I love this episode. I know you guys will too. This is Pretty Depressed with Chloe. I guess the first place to start is is politics and why, because you know, I feel like since 2016, we've all kind of doing that thing where we think we all armchair experts know best, given that we're now all experts politically. Um, but as someone who's actually doing it, why and how and where did that start? Uh, it didn't start with any intention to be involved in politics necessarily. Um, so I was never engaged in uh, youth uh, kind of wings of, pol- uh, of political parties, uh, which is interesting, particularly now that like the spinoff is doing their series. Uh, I had never been actually all too engaged in politics with a big P. Like my old man, um, and who actually is a high school dropout in his own right, I'm the first person in my family to go to uni. Uh, I spent a lot of time growing up to debating uh, philosophy and politics, but we didn't really call it that with him. So just different approaches to the world and how we could solve problems. And he used to really rile me up. Like the first prime minister that I remember um, quite vividly when I was at high school was Helen Clark. And I remember, um, you know, having these debates with dad where we'd just try and rock, you know, pull my leg. Uh, when I went to uni, I studied philosophy in my BA because I'd kind of always had this way of like, what is going on? Why are we doing this? And I guess also in a similar vein to why you started this podcast, wanted to kind of understand why I sometimes felt really ridiculously overwhelmed by everything. Uh, I also did psychology kind of with the intention of understanding it from a scientific perspective, but I have dyscalculia, which is like dyslexia, but with numbers and it just totally wasn't for me. I then oh, wow. Wait, hold on. I've never even yeah. heard of that. I have dyslexia, but I've never heard of dyscalculia. So what? It's yeah. the same thing. So, Numbers, just like I cannot retain them particularly well. Um, It's pretty low key for me. It manifests a lot worse than other people. But like if you give me a string of numbers, I find it very difficult to retain those, Um, which is why I'm a lot better at kind of abstraction and shapes and geometry and that kind of stuff. But uh, for me, like remembering phone numbers absolutely gnarly and um, I have to remember it like lyrics from a song or something you know so I actually didn't do um, maths at school uh, after level one uh, even though it was against all of the advice of teachers and stuff and I'm just like hey I'm technically a high school dropout I'm doing okay yeah. um, but like that's my advice to kids you know you know like I have the um, privilege of going and speaking at high schools and being like uh, based on all the stuff that, you know, I was at high school, I should not be all G right now, but you have the opportunity to reinvent yourself multiple times. And, you know, if you surround yourself with the right people and take those risks, but also remember to learn from your mistakes and not have them define you, um, then you've got massive opportunities. So I was at BFM, um, independent radio station, and I was involved actually along Karangahape Road in particular with doing like pop-up shops and uh, a bunch of gigs. I worked at Neck of the Woods on K-Road. 
Uh, and I remember really vividly the closure of the King's Arms. And mm. it was basically as a result of one of the key contributing factors was poor planning. Um, so regulations, which meant that a really cheap apartment block could go up next to this established music venue. Of course, it didn't have adequate sound insulation. So next minute, everyone's complaining about the noise of this established music venue. And I was like, this is cooked. Like we have this situation where you've had a space and a place for young local musicians, artists to get a foot in their door and the door to build an audience, to uh, try and make a career of something that we tend to say that we uh, want to support, but we totally don't. Mm. Uh, and I was just like, this doesn't seem to like line up with who we think we are and what Auckland City could be. And at the time I was interviewing um, what the mainstream media had deemed as the top four candidates for the Auckland mayoralty. And I was just like, you know what? Um, I am so sick of complaining about things. Um, I am going to try and, instead of being reactive, trying to report on issues and have people then go, okay, I can do something. I'm going to go, I'm going to stop sitting on the sidelines and actually be in the conversation because at the very least, I then can say, you know, I gave it a shot to try and change it. Yeah. Wow. That's so impressive. Where, where does I don't know if impressive as like naive and deeply earnest. <laughs> that's, that's great. Isn't that awesome? I mean, I, I feel like I moved to LA not knowing anyone and everyone's like, she's so brave. And I was like, no, I just... Now I look back, I'm like, you idiot. <laughs> like, like, you know, when yeah. we grow older, we become more... Um, Conservative or fearful yeah. or risk adverse. Yeah, totally. And I think that's, um, you know, a lot of people nowadays kind of hit me up and go, oh, you know, life experience. And I'm like, actually, the life experience that younger people have to bring to the table is an open-mindedness to how things could be different, not being entrenched in approaches to and the way things have always been. Because the way that we've always done things obviously isn't working. Why wouldn't you want to change? And what, but there is, I guess there is that other side of that argument, which just for the for let the record state, I totally agree with you. One of my questions actually that I was like, I must, um, I must ask you, how do you open a closed mind? But I'll let you marinate that for a second, but yeah, but then people go, oh, well, if you don't learn history, then you're at risk of repeating it. And, you know, there is something in having seen cycles happen over time and what works. And so I'm sure that that isn't the first time that argument has come to you. How do you oh, totally. cycle that out? Because I watch well, footage, I mean, footage just get slammed and he's, you know, a decade older than you in the U.S. election. I don't know if you followed any of that. Yeah. It was like everyone's yeah. response to him was just his age, his age, his age. And it's like. That's getting really diluted. Oh, totally. Um, so the thing about age, which is funny, like the most hilarious manifestation of that is when this one lady uh, hit me up in 2016 local body elections and was like, you're only 22. Your brain isn't fully developed until you're 25. Therefore, you shouldn't be anywhere near decision making. And I was like, okay, cool. Like, I'll go back and do my research because I'm always like, I'll engage with you on a logical basis. So I did the research about brain development, um, obviously from a very basic level. I'm not a brain scientist, but I found that, sure, your brain doesn't fully develop until you're 25, but also your brain starts degenerating from 45. So I could see the humor in it. And I was like, I'm on the up as far as I'm concerned. Um, you know, other people, you know, you can't necessarily make that um, kind of argument. But it was also um, like the life experience of a younger person, particularly, you know, millennial generation. Uh, it's really funny because I think we are probably the most nihilistic. Like, you know, you have Generation X, who's typically framed as being the forgotten generation between the boomers and millennials. Um, millennials, though, are like born and raised in this era of real individual responsibility for all of the world's problems. And we have been raised to kind of come up with things like conscious consumerism, but not quite recognizing that we're also part of a collective a community and social structures, which sometimes perpetuate these problems. Whereas Gen Z, like the kids coming through leading like the solidarity movements with Black Lives Matter or school strikes for climate, like they know how to organize and they know how to change the world. So it's just been really interesting for me to reflect on how um, particularly age as a demographic is not a static thing. It's not like your ethnicity or potentially your religion or your geographical background. It's something that you don't have forever. So the benefit of thinking about every generation and their experiences is that 
every generation has the responsibility to progress the um, kind of mahi of the generation that came before. And the most funny thing about the kind of argument that's progressed around, you know, and you see it reflected in data that typically older people skew more conservative. I think if you imagine a person's life experience, like chronologically, when you're younger, you look at the world, you go, what's the meaning of life? How do I fit in here? What's my purpose? How do I contribute? As you get older, you start to accumulate stuff and you have a reputation and you have a family and you potentially have a house. I don't know. And you feel inclined to protect those things as opposed to explore. And that means that you kind of lock down the way that things are because you value predictability over change. And, you know, change comes with its own sense of risk. So I think the real value in uh, kind of youth around the decision-making table is that it is always going to be a different person. Every 10 years, you're not going to have that stasis. And in turn, it's about recognizing that there's value in kind of the wisdom or experiences of older folks or middle-aged folks. But in that same vein, particularly in a place like Parliament, it's supposed to be a House of Representatives. Like you're supposed to have people of all demographics there. And that's not to the exclusion of older people. That's not to the exclusion of middle-aged people. But it's to say you need that breadth and depth in order to come to sustainable solutions. That's such a great way of putting it. The idea around like predictability kind of becomes the most important thing. I guess like for me where I'm sitting, you know, and I'm a few years older than you, not married, don't have children, like still feel like this child, like, oh, I often say like, oh, when I grow up and it's like, yeah. um, Kim. <laughs> but like that, I, that idea of falling into that mindset keeps me up at night. I so worry that I would fall into that predictable mindset or, or, and perhaps I hold my tongue in saying this, but this, it almost feels like a selfish mindset. At what age do you become more concerned about your own belongings, things, and security financially and stop thinking of, of others. And like yeah. that, like a real, I don't know, like, and, and again, I'm an actor, what do I know? But, you know, and I'm surrounded by a lot of liberal minded friends, but I just feel like, shouldn't my vote when I go to the polls and vote be for what is best for everyone rather the than what people. is best yeah. for me? And if it means I have to pay a little bit more taxes to accumulate that, like, shouldn't I be cool with that to know that like people aren't sleeping under a bridge or (laughs) hard for me to rationalize that other mindset of like oh I'm gonna have to pay more or you know my staff if I had them would like I just don't relate that and perhaps that's because I'm cemented in my mindset but I'm sure you must come across that a lot so like Uh, how do you bridge that like yeah I think there definitely is um like our politics and you kind of touched on it before with like the UK and Brexit and like the 2016 um US elections and how that totally blew everyone's mind and what we've seen is that dialogue and politics has become even more polarized right so like you can say the term for example Trump in a progressive circle and everyone will kind of nod their head and it has this latent meaning and then you say it in a circle of right-wing people and they all nod their head and it has a latent meaning there but those associations that same terminology are entirely different in those two groups of people and the problem is that those two groups of people aren't inclined to talk to each other but they have associations and representations and uh, assumptions about each other so one of the kind of really important things for me when I had the privilege of first getting into this position was like I'm going to talk to everybody who thinks that they disagree with me like I'm going to go out there I'm going to go on my show I'll be on like all the talkback radio if they want to yarn to me I will absolutely show up and I will you know respectfully listen to them but I'm also going to respectfully put my view across I'm not going to kind of kowtow and cater to their world view and I think what we forget is particularly in like a nation as small as Aotearoa is we are the population the size of Melbourne we are tiny we have two degrees of separation But, you know, ideas can catch like wildfire. We typically um, pride ourselves on our history with like women's suffrage or, you know, anti-nuclear or the Springbok tour. Um, And the stuff that we also don't talk about that we led the world in, in terms of um, drug harm reduction, we were the first country in the world to institute a national needle exchange service, which in turn has meant that we have the lowest number of uh, transmitted HIV AIDS amongst people who inject intravenous drugs. And like all of these things that we want, once we're like, we can do this, 
seemed to be a matter of the past and now we seem to be more focused on our kind of reputation internationally as opposed to necessarily what we're doing domestically at home and looking after each other. And you could argue that that's been the trajectory of like kind of economic policy for the past 30 years or whatever, but I also think that it's part and parcel, like the epidemic, for lack of a better term, of the mental ill health crises, I think is really the pointy end of kind of decades of individualizing people and going, hey, you're responsible for solving all of these problems. Don't see yourself as part of something bigger. Uh, It's your problem. It's therefore a problem with you. And you add to that kind of the context of transients operating in the gig economy, uh, moving around heaps because you can't find a stable house to rent. Like all of these things impact your life, your perspective. And that again, kind of brings it back to why it is so important for those perspectives to be represented in places like politics. Mm. Where, because you kind of mentioned mental health and I know you've been very vocal about your, you know, experiencing depression and anxiety, because I'm curious of how it shows up for you. And this is my ignorance on mental health. Um, I never thought I was depressed, even though I was having suicidal thoughts because I was a high functioning depressive. I could get totally. out of bed. I could busy myself the entire day um, and never was privy to the mindset of that my brain was capable and high functioning enough to tell me lies, which came out, comes out in negative self-talk and spiraling. Um, and just purely because I grew up my whole life where it was like, oh my gosh, you work so hard and you're and my ego enjoying that feedback that, you know, I would have a burnout every year. And it was only until it was really dramatic that I was like, oh, okay, this is something. So I was curious in, in how it shows up to you or for you or whether it's more seasonal and yeah, as much yeah, as so- speak to that, but. Yeah, for me, um, it really first, and this is about to get real heavy. <laughs> so, fine, yeah. It, yeah, so it peaked for me um, when I was in my kind of mid-teens, so 15, 16, 17. And basically, I got to a place where I was massively abusing alcohol because I hated myself so much. Uh, And it was, you know, completely unbeknownst to my parents. And it was just engaging in really dumb, risky behavior because I was like, I don't care about myself. And if harm happens to me, then I deserve it. Um, And all of those kinds of things, like deeply entrenched self-loathing, which manifests in really bad, risky behavior, not necessarily behaving poorly towards others, but kind of anticipating that you'll put yourself in those situations. Uh, and I kind of realized, and it was quite a like darkly uh, philosophical approach to it, that unless I changed everything about my life, I was probably not going to survive. So I approached it in a very rational way, um, which I think is one of the um, interesting manifestations of depression, right, is that you can end up becoming entirely lacking in any expression of emotion. Like you just feel like you're a pet. Like there's, there's no emotion that can be um, kind of coming out. So I just like, was like, I need to leave school. Um, I need to leave home. Um, I need to completely change my surroundings, um, who I engage with, and the things that I'm doing in my day-to-day life, my routine. Which so I leave school. The one around you is kind of this manic episode of like, what is going? Yeah. Oh, totally. And it was just like, you know, um, again, not necessarily that um, everybody was like bad or anything like that. It's just that you know that environment becomes quite, uh, for lack of a better term, and it is a term that ends up being bandied about and made fun of or whatever, but quite triggering in respect of kind of that is the environment and routine that you're in when you are in a cycle of bad behavior and continuing to stay in that environment or in those circumstances can continue to perpetuate it. So having new kind of trigger points or um, environmental factors can completely shift it. So yeah, I got um, something called discretionary entrance to uni. I applied for that. And because I went to a fancy school in Epsom, had to sign dropout forms. Um, And I just started working in retail. And I just basically started working a lot in retail, kind of changing stuff, putting myself out there a little bit. Um, At that point in time, I met my now ex-boyfriend, Alex. But, you know, that was a really interesting thing as well, because everyone at uni um, was in entirely new nobody from my year group had gone to school uh, to uni obviously there was a year gap 
Um, so that for me was the major way in which I kind of survived for lack of a better term, but that didn't mean that depression went away. Right. Like, yeah, it no, different. well, yeah, that's again, my ignorance. I was like, I'll do a podcast and then I'll solve it in real time. Someone's like, Oh no, honey. Like, Oh yeah. The life right yeah. What? (laughs) Like, so one of the um, really interesting things, right, is um, now that I'm in this um, massively privileged position in Parliament, like I'm the mental health spokesperson for the Greens, and I was involved in helping to create the architecture or the kind of blueprint terms of reference for the mental health and addiction inquiry that this government uh, put out in 2019. Uh, But the interesting thing is that it actually isn't the first mental health inquiry that we've done in New Zealand. We've done two or three in the past. What was different about this one is it was the first time that we approached mental health by not trying to immediately focus on uh, kind of pathologizing or medicalizing or pharmaceuticalizing mental health and just going, you know, that's how we ended up with treatments like 40 years ago of electroshock therapy and all of those awful things. Like this is something that people need to be fixed uh, with, not realizing that perhaps it's something they live with. So um, what we basically found um, in a nutshell is that you can have a biological predisposition, that being kind of hereditary traits that come together and who you are, uh, that can either, that can manifest uh, in mental ill health or its cousin addiction or dependency, which is typically self-medication of mental health issues um, and issues of isolation or trauma. Uh, But basically, your environment can either aggravate or mitigate that. So it kind of turns up or down the dials. So recognizing that you're in a situation where you have kind of all of those triggering factors for those underlying things that you know um, might be brought to the fore has been a really useful way for me to start to understand like that I need exercise, I need sleep, I need to eat. You don't always end up doing all of those things, but you know when you're having a bad time that had you done that, you know, maybe you would be feeling a bit better. And it also enables you to stop blaming yourself constantly for experiencing this. Are you good at that? And I say that as someone who has a podcast about mental health, who like for the first time last night um, had to get some melatonin because I'm also like very strong headed and I'm like, I can do it myself. And yeah. And just find it really difficult to do the basics of self-care. I can go and put myself out there and talk to a room full of thousands of people. Yet some of these like basic mental health hygiene things like going for a walk or whatever, I have this stubbornness to do, which is, yeah. And you can't tell me otherwise. Someone telling me like, oh, you're having a bad time, go for a run. And I'm like, I might murder you because... (laughs) Last thing someone how dare you how do you yeah you want to see how bad I am no yeah. um, it's just like um I think it's kind of that um again like what you were speaking to is people don't necessarily recognize high functioning depression in particular because uh you fill your void you're addicted to work and that is how you prove your self-worth even though funnily enough like the critique that people might throw at you particularly the really deeply awful personal stuff really resonates uh, the oh, nice oh. things people say just kind of slide off of you and you're like, no, I have to keep proving myself. I have to keep proving myself. And that looks like you're just a really productive, successful version of what we put out there as the model archetype of a human being in the 21st century. And I think that's part of the problem, right? Is that yeah. uh, actually, you know, people who are supposedly at their peak performance as human beings probably aren't usually all G like it is not sustainable nor healthy to be working 90 plus hours a week. And the fact that we uh, fetishize that almost is so deeply problematic. But then there's also like on the flip side of it, kind of the commodification of wellness and the idea that you can do all of these deeply unsustainable day-to-day practices. If only you get a massage, you know, if you get a massage, you can still work 90 hour weeks. Well, that's what I was going to ask him how you exercise self-care because when I was like, you know, having quite severe suicidal thoughts, I would be like, I'll take a bath. And that was the most dangerous mm-hmm. place for me because I'm, like, I'm alone with my thoughts and without a phone to distract me. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. thoughts. But, you know, yeah, I was curious how you exercise self-care and but because, you know, you're also doing a job where 
you are potentially working till midnight, 1 a.m., mm-hmm. starting at 7, and there is at some point you are not in control of that if you wish to pursue this. So how do you Absolutely. Yeah, so I um, would probably be lying if I said that I'd, I'd found balance. Yeah. Um, and that's one of the many reasons that I've tried to be really vocal about how deeply inhuman and unsustainable the idea of our parliament as it presently exists is. You know, this is one of the many reasons that it's so hard to get representation of particularly marginalised communities because, I mean, firstly, it doesn't look or sound like them, but secondly, uh, the idea of even running for parliament requires... Uh, an XYZ amount of resource and also, you know, the ability to work those long hours. You can't be looking after your friends or your family or your kids as the primary caregiver when you're doing those kinds of things. And then we end up in those really problematic notions of like superwomen, mothers and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, busy ladies. Oh, totally. And in terms of me, um, like the stuff that I try and find, Um, is recognizing that actually the best place for me to find um, a kind of mirror for where I'm actually at is to touch base with some of my really close friends. And I don't have a massive kind of friend circle, uh, but it's people who, um, you know, if I am really bad, like I'll just go over to their house and lie on their couch and they will just like cook me food. And like my love language uh, is acts of service. So people providing me with food is one of the best ways that my friends regularly look after me. And it was recognizing like there's kind of some interesting parallels between political change and like well-being and community uh, that you cannot like we we fetishize again this idea of resilience is something that is purely individualistic forgetting that we are social animals and resilience is actually a community trait it's about recognizing that not everybody is going to be able to carry all of the burdens all of the time so providing that space for some people to step up and others to step back at certain points is really important just happens that we caricature that in like 2020 as the idea of delegation but it's actually the way that human beings have survived and evolved for a millennia yeah so you you get so friends feed you that I love that because I love my sister does that she made me cookies and I wanted to cry just because it was delicious and it was yeah (laughs) and it's the nicest thing but it's also just kind of that very Um, physical demonstration of love and care right and I think that that was another big realization for me like we were talking about how words don't really sink in so the act of somebody going out of their way to care for you uh, has been really deeply meaningful for me and it's been one of the ways that I've come to understand myself in relation to others and like that's the like funny thing I know that it's like this kind of classic millennial idea like looking at it's like horoscopes um but like the idea of looking into how you express love and that potentially being a platonic thing in terms of how you have a deep uh, relationship with somebody in a friendship capacity uh, has been such a brilliant way for me to broaden my understanding of myself but also the people that I surround myself with and I think that's kind of ties back to what we were talking about originally is how you begin to become kind of less selfish because there's these interesting um, theories as well around like mental health which is that you get so tied into who you are and the notion of ego which often again in like the 21st century is tied to these really awful kind of narcissistic associations but that's not what it traditionally means it's value neutral so the idea of the ego like yourself who you are where you're at when you begin to look outside of yourself at extrinsic things and your surroundings and look to those for meaning then you get a greater sense of place and purpose Mm. yeah I I feel like relationships is like one of the big things that I drop the ball on because I always prioritize work and employment And that's a really hard pill for me to swallow because I put all my validation in employment, especially as a freelancer, you know, I'm like, oh, thank goodness I'm not crazy. I mean, I'm crazy in a different (laughs) kettle of fish, which I'm also happy to own. But like, yeah, yeah, that that pursuit and that, um, yeah, it's been a really difficult pill to swallow to realize that my relationships through my own uh, priorities are not... And this idea of at your deathbed and the people around you. And it was always like, oh, yeah, yeah, they'll be there. Or, you know, that'll be great. But it's, did I achieve this goal that I was set totally. up? Totally. Totally. But I mean, 
You surely, you surely would have had this experience, right? Like you'll achieve something and then it'll actually feel like nothing. Like you'll have hit that milestone and then it's like, okay, what next? You know? And that's when you come to realize that it's just this ever moving feast. Yeah. My, what I was going to ask you is on that of like, if you've ever felt that sense of arrival, I've had so many achievements that if you were to tell me a decade ago that you were going to do this, I'd be like, shut up. That's awesome. Yet in (laughs) actuality of, of achieving them, this desire of this euphoric feeling of arrival just never came. And the heartbreak that's associated with that, I don't know if you can relate, but there is massively. Yeah. And it's the lack of presence as well, I think. Um, kind of the idea that you're constantly looking over the present's shoulder and are constantly attempting to do more and to be more and to seek out greater validation. Because if you've hit that milestone, then surely you can hit the next one, you know? Like the the probably the biggest example of that in my life so far was when I graduated with two degrees, like my BA and my law degree, which I like worked so hard for. And I then ended up leaving my graduation early so that I could go and do a debate um, for the Auckland mayoralty. And it was just, I never celebrated it. And it was like actually also my 21st, because I was also in quite a dark space, I didn't end up really ever celebrating that in any meaningful way. And not having those moments um, with people around you, or even when you reflect on yourself and the work that you've put in and the notion of that journey and kind of what you're speaking to around arrival um, and the presence that's associated to actually just being in a moment for a second and not focusing on how you can be better or achieve more validation. um, I think that's got to be one of the biggest challenges. And that takes me back to the point about Like I have in the past three years in particular become uh, the happiest that I've ever been. And that doesn't mean like I'm bouncing off the walls all the time by any measure, but it is to say that when I first came into parliament, I was miserable because I was constantly that person of going next to next to next to next. And I have found more meaning and therefore more presence and deeper relationships in recognizing that it's about surrounding yourself with those people and taking a step back so that you can be better and more productive and whatever else when you need to be. Uh, And that has been one of the greatest lessons from uh, people around me, basically. When you take a second to not like realize that you don't own all of the answers. Yeah. Do you, do you feel in those relationships and maybe like if you can teleport to three years ago, did you feel like that sense of goal orientation or um, wanting to achieve a certain level was also present in those relationships? Were you also like, I want my relationship with, say, my father to be the best and I want us to have this, co-. like, did you also kind of cement those thoughts into into relationships at a time or no? Yeah, to a certain extent. I, um, I think that I kind of caricatured myself as like a lone wolf and that I did things almost in spite of people saying that I couldn't do them and it's Mm -hmm. like my motivator was trying to prove people wrong and that can be quite a dangerous place to be in albeit potentially like one of the most uh, best driving kind of forces but you know I have um, an interesting experience where I um, am adopted by the guy who I call my dad. So he told me when I was 13 years old, which then meant that from kind of the age of 13 to 21, when I first tracked down and met my biological father, that I was like Googling this random dude's name, uh, looking up all of these people who had the same name on Facebook and Instagram and LinkedIn and everything else. And that attempt to kind of, or, or rather that thought that I would solidify my identity and understand who I was if I got this piece of the puzzle. And then finally meeting my biological dad and being like, I don't feel this massive sense of relief in that. And recognizing again that I was seeking this external validation or somebody else to tell me who I was. Uh, and that that was not going to, you know, deliver me um, to any position of feeling as though, yeah, I'd arrived. So uh, I think for me, it's been 
probably more than anything, a projection of who I can be in those relationships. So I think I spent a long time, um, particularly in early um, intimate relationships, trying to be everything. And, you know, particularly with men, trying to fix them uh, and carry them and all of those things, which I think particularly women um, and the stereotypes that we're portrayed in, particularly in the media, uh, end up typically occupying because that's what we're told counts mm-hmm. and is like valued. I'm so with you on all of that. I, I feel <laughs> um, I, I turned a bit of a page a while ago. I'm I'm consider myself very lucky. I grew up with my stepdad, and I have a biological dad who lives in Australia. But I definitely, and maybe just from movies and things as well, I fell into that daddy issues narrative. And I don't know if I really felt that way or I felt like I needed to feel that way. I, I I don't know if I can articulate that, but I do feel in a different place with it now of being like, how cool I have two father figures rather than like my narrative that I told myself growing up was that this poor me, victim me kind of thing. And looking for that, like you say, in relationship um which was really damaging, like this yeah. narrative I had created in my head of like people will leave and, yeah. you know, this desire to be a perfectionist in yeah. um, intimate relationships so that they have no reason to leave. Then yet, Totally, you need to be needed. Yeah. Yeah, like, and I, yeah. I really do feel that that is something that I probably haven't had done enough therapy on, but... um let's <laughs> well, be providing you some prescriptions yeah, yeah but like you know it is it is nice and I, I just wonder if you sit in that place like now that I've been able to reframe it I feel like really lucky that I have two awesome guys who provide different things for me and not basically maybe you can speak to that as well from being um adopted of going like what is the narrative you're playing into and what is like the actuality of it? And I don't know if you Oh, totally. Any- and I think as well, um, just kind of that projection um, on my parents and like semblances of blame and also does that rest with me? Does that rest with them? And kind of attempting to reconcile that with becoming older and realizing that actually like all of these tropes that we hold in our heads when we're younger, that adults know what the hell they're doing are completely fallacious. Uh, so, you know, you like look at adults when you're a kid. Right? Yeah. I mean, they're all, we're all making it up. Everyone's making it up. And that is the most freeing, liberating uh, realization to me. Uh, but it also helps me to deal and grapple with the fact that potentially my parents did make mistakes and that's okay. If I ever end up in the position of having kids, I am probably going to do the same thing. And that has kind of helped to navigate the fact that kind of like you were speaking about, you know, like I couldn't ever find representation of what my family was like or was supposed to be like in TV. So I was like, Therefore, I must be the weird kid who's represented as like hanging out with the stoners or the people smoking tobacco behind the bike shed or whatever. Uh, And I think that, you know, trying to identify or define yourself by those things uh, really actually damages and uh, helps to shape and pigeonhole your potential. But it also makes you sad because you end up putting yourself in a box that you didn't create. So for me, um, helping to build those new relationships with my parents and recognize that they're just figuring it out as well um, has been massively beneficial to me growing into being an adult. And that's also been a big part of kind of the last few years of um, my growth and development and my therapy. How do you medicate? Do you do talk therapy? Do you have you ever yeah done- talk therapy? Um, so I actually have kind of reached the end of where I think I can go with uh, my current psych. Uh, so she's recommended me a few others. Uh, the reason that I went with her is because she had experience of uh, particularly politicians, uh, okay. and it was the first time yeah that I've been in a position to be able to um, actually afford therapy um, and you know the privilege of my new position that I'm in now uh, but I also and it's, it's one of those things that has been uh, kind of difficult to grapple with because I originally was so hesitant towards it but um, have been on medication for the past year and that for me is what I see as a bridge uh, to helping to kind of create a 
bandwidth kind of a peak and a bottom, uh, a, a range of emotions that you can exist within that don't end up overwhelming you, particularly as you're lifting the lid on some quite potentially traumatic things or feelings or whatever else. So uh, for me, uh, I, and, and going on that medication, have dealt with a lot of the kind of tropes, I think, particularly of uh, going like, I don't, I'm too strong for that. I don't need that kind of mm -hmm. stuff. But also, you know, uh, isn't medication bad for you? Couldn't you possibly do this through therapy or whatever else? Uh, but what I've found is that um, actually just trusting the process and uh, using it as uh, one of the many tools in the toolkit has been really beneficial um, for me and my journey. And everybody ha else has an entirely different one. Yeah, and I have a, I have a disclaimer at the beginning of this too because I, I've, I've talked to people who are really pro-medication and have explained it to me like you're walking on a tightrope carrying a bunch of glasses and the medication at least means you can get rid of the tightrope and you've still got to carry the glasses, but you're at least walking on the ground. I was like, that's yeah. a really great way of putting it. Um, but I also definitely have found, and this is, you know, just a personal experience yeah. thing. I have no medical expertise whatsoever and uh, attempt for nobody to extrapolate based on my experience. Um, but, but at times, because of that kind of bandwidth um, blocker uh, that you can't go too high or you can't go too low, that I almost end up missing the catalytic tip-off point where I'm like, I'm really at my lowest now. Now I can bounce back. So you kind of, at times, I've felt uh, suspended above that pit of despair. And that in and of itself, that inability to um, necessarily experience that depth and kind of instead get that numbness uh, can be quite a negative thing unto itself, which is why by itself um, I don't think I could do. So seeing it as a tool is important. Would you be open to other things? And I only say this because in doing this podcast, especially I speak to a lot of people in LA who have, who it's been really exciting for me to open up the world of the fact that there is other ways of not just talk therapy. There's yeah. like hypnosis, there is ayahuasca retreats, there is, <laughs> you know, and, and also like removing that stigma that part of your own brand of depression will also require its own form of medication and that whatever that is, whether it's pharmaceutical or mm. whatever, that it is also a journey of finding what works for you. Massively. And that's really cool too. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's definitely also been this process of going. Um, I think that I've seen my depression through a very kind of Western medicalized lens for a really long time. And actually, interestingly enough, in holding the portfolios of both mental health and also looking at the history of drug law uh, has really helped me to recognize how repressed, particularly indigenous practices and treatments for mental ill health have been. So um, I've been really proud of, for example, um, and this is one of the many things that I don't really get to talk about because cannabis is apparently way more sexy, but I've helped um, the uh, these uh, academics at the University of Auckland navigate uh, ethics approval at the Ministry of Health to do New Zealand's first localised uh, experiments on treatment of PTSD and what's called treatment-resistant depression with psilocybin, or traditionally known as mushrooms. Uh, and that has, again, a really chequered history that was used in Indigenous practices, and particularly Southern America, South, you know, the um, American uh, South. And that as a uh, approach to things is definitely not something that I would close myself off to, but it holds the space in uh, illegality and in kind of the mythology of drugs and abuse and addiction and whatever else because of our cultural norms and approaches to it. So. Yeah, I think um, for me... Well, I've, I spoke to a few people who are like, Kim, I do... Uh, Jamie Lynn Slinger, she's like, I do mushrooms once every three months with my partner. She has MS and she's like really for it. Or I spoke to someone who microdoses on LSD and it's been... Yeah. You know, they've had severe, severe trauma and years of talk therapy hasn't worked, but something in this is... And yeah, I guess I sit on the side of the fence of... I did... <laughs> I did MDMA once and just like lost my mind into another. <laughs> but I'm like, maybe I'm too sensitive. But also like, who am I to say that that 
process doesn't work for them if they've been experiencing a trauma that's been so severe. Oh, totally. And I think one of the big things, um, and Michael Pollan um, actually, who a food writer, but he wrote extensively about the history of psilocybin, uh, kind of speaks to and unpacking all of these notions, right, is I think particularly a lot of people have experiences of um, these kind of psychoactive substances in very uncontrolled environments, but also without understanding of what's actually in them. So they may be laced with whatever else. But the notion of particularly Indigenous practices um, and what has been repressed through criminal prohibition uh, has firstly been development of the evidence base and how effective these actually are, which is part of the problem that everyone needs to talk based on their reckons as opposed to the evidence which we only have for pharmaceuticals. But the other thing is that the practices historically around um, psychoactives as treatment for um, trauma or mental ill health, although they didn't call it that, uh, was to have what is called the setting and um, a navigator. So it is having a very intentional space where people are going through this kind of experience of losing their ego or whatever else, but also having a guide who is there, you know, in uh, certain kind of traditional societies and their practices known as a shaman or whatever else, who helps somebody navigate uh, what can be a very discombobulating experience. And again, those are not uh, experiences or stories that we have the equivalent of um, here uh, in, you know, Aotearoa in 2020. So looking forward to development of that evidence base. Well, I'm all for it. Yeah, I think, <laughs> I think, but yeah, just in seeing people really make breakthroughs, it's like how cool and freeing for them if they, you know, God forbid, you know, someone you knew or in your family had been through some kind of severe trauma that is just, you know, an underbelly of your whole life, then wouldn't you want them to, yeah, overcome that? What does oh, your brain look like? I? What does your brain look like? Oh, dear. Um, so I recently found out, and I thought that uh, in films, you know how there's like a dialogue or rather a monologue, I thought that that was always a narrative device. I didn't realize that people's brains actually, that people spoke to themselves and their voices. Um, I, I, my partner was telling me about this because she read about it online and I was like, that's weird. I always thought that that was just like a thing that they did in movies. Wait, you <laughs> so don't talk I, to yourself in your brain? No, I didn't. I, yeah, I didn't, I didn't know that that was a thing that actually happened. I thought that was just like a movie device. Um, so for me, uh, it's like just kind of amorphous shapes and concepts and like associations. So like touch and sound and smell and whatever else. Like I'm not one of those kind of auteurs who um, see, hears music and sees colors or whatever else. But I do, um, yeah, it's just kind of blobby. It's not like this a... so fascinating to me. I am so excited that I asked you this question because <laughs> I had like multiple versions of my voice coming forward, grabbing the microphone. Like, what is a shower like for you? Because my shower is just full of a dialogue. What is a shower? Oh, I just walk through, like, experiences and, like, associations with stuff. Like, um, I was, yeah, so um, my partner asked me the other day when we kind of had this massive moment, she was like, what? Um, I, she was like, so what's it like when you are thinking about what to get for lunch? I think about what things taste like. Like I just, I, I, it's like this experiential kind of sensational thing as opposed to being like in my head, I could have Indian, I could have Mexican, I would like that. Like that's whack to me. Well, I think you're whack. I'm going on the record, <laughs> record state. No, I think it's absolutely fascinating. Because yeah, but this is how cool the human cool. brain is. We know so little about it. We know more about like the universe outside of the planet right. than we do about what's going on inside of us. Interesting. Okay, <laughs> great. I like your blobby brain. That makes me really <laughs> I am now when I think of you, I think, oh, she's got so many blobs and shapes. Yeah, it's exactly like, you know, the, um, is it the Rochdale or whatever they're called? The blobs that they do um, in psychotherapy and stuff? Like, it's like that. It's just all these different kind of images and, like, experiences, but it's it's quite amorphous, and it doesn't necessarily have shape or colour, but, you know, you have, have experiential sensations associated to it. There's not the terminology to explain the way that I think because I think I am probably a minority. <laughs> no, well, I don't. I don't know which the side of the coin. I mean, obviously, given that we have voiceovers and movies and stuff, would 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 make people appear that that is more common. 
However, I don't know. I just find I would love to switch bodies with you just for some quiet. (laughs) So do you lie awake at night with, instead of voices, blobs? Yeah, totally. It's just like, um, just like things that come kind of in and out of like focus, but it's not necessarily watching a scene. It's like, yeah, I just, just like associations. Like sometimes I can feel it or it's like, uh, I, I sometimes see it. Um, but yeah, very infrequent to like hear it in people's voices. So if you don't you're know how to explain it. Yeah, no, that I think you've explained it as much as I'm willing to accept it's it because I can't, <laughs> you're explaining an art piece I've not seen. I'm going, sure, I kind of get it. Maybe. Maybe um, it exists. So, so when you go and do, uh, you know, speaking in parliament and stuff, do you rehearse? Can you rehearse in your own brain or are you just moving through like ideas as they come to you or Yeah, it's typically, um, so I have a notebook and um, actually cracking the code on how I learnt was the big game changer for me at uni Um, because I used to just, you know, spend a long time studying in high school and just write screeds and screeds and screeds of stuff, but it wouldn't necessarily stick in my head. Uh, For me, it's been about tangibly putting stuff down but kind of uh thought bubbles um and just kind of prompts so um it's been an interesting discussion actually because James Shaw um co-leader of the Greens he always hits me up and he's like you have a photographic memory and I'm like I don't think I have a photographic memory because I think I'd be a lot better at taking tests if I did (laughs) but Mm. I definitely I think because the blobbiness like have an ability to to pull stuff together and put it pull stuff apart and put it back together in perhaps a slightly different way than most people would think of so I approach um speeches in parliament or like um out and about with folks predicated on basically um a a prompt of an idea and then attempting to pull that apart and um yeah I I think it's also broadly come with practice like my first speech that I ever did in parliament was so damn hard to write firstly because it's your maiden speech and it's supposed to be like who you are and who you will be forever uh but secondly because uh it was just really difficult to try and structure uh something which I felt should be really free-flowing and I typically do speak in a very free-flowing way Mm. We are very articulate. I definitely wrote that down. That's why I was asking, I'm like, are you back there going, here's a zinger for this person? (laughs) (laughs) I do sometimes think about, and this has been an interesting um, experience in politics in particular, like knowing that I'll go on breakfast TV or whatever. I do think about, and this is particularly an engaging and controversial topics because you know that people will attack at you and come at you with all these different things. So I do end up broadly playing out like how would it, be if I existed in this other person's perspective or way of thinking about the world but it's not this kind of back and forward argumentative thing Um, and when I do try and write it down it will end up kind of like a mind map but yeah. Do you ever feel like you are and I don't I don't want to put this on you but you are pursuing this of your own accord yet you are someone who's been quite open about your mental health where other politicians haven't you are a very open approachable person you are someone who's been very open about their sexuality and do you feel that this immense pressure as one of the few people in that room to represent a group of people who for many reasons may have not felt represented before and how does that feel to be that person I'm not, I know you're not someone yeah, to warrant, I mean, warrant, warrant a pity party or anything like that, but yeah, yeah. there is a lot of attention because you are the, you know, like AOC is in the States, not that it, that is a compliment. Oh, man, way too kind. Um, no, but for but, me, you know, like that feeling of like, do you ever feel imposter syndrome because people are going, yay, God will change <laughs> the world for me. Like, Oh, man. I mean, I definitely, so like the first thing about inspiration that I try and unpack for people when they do say, you know, um, really lovely things, but kind of go, you're going to sort it all out. I'm like, 
inspiration is not an excuse to put somebody on a platform if you're inspired by somebody it's literally a mirror like you're seeing something reflected back to you that you admire about yourself so that is recognition that you you can do this too uh so for me i definitely feel uh, a weight of responsibility not to screw it up um because i am really conscious particularly on the youth thing uh, that I am held out. Um, I never hold myself out for it, but you know, people kind of, and on the mental health stuff, but if I screw up, then I will be taken as representing everybody with mental health issues and every young person ever. And that creates an extra impediment or barrier on top of all of the stereotypes that already exist around people who have those characteristics. So um, that's part of the reason that I really attempt to come to all debates in particular uh, really thoroughly prepared, but also the reason that I don't just, you know, hypothesize random stuff off the top of my head, particularly when it comes to policy positions or politics. Like I'm a very um, unusual um, kind of person in the role, I guess, in that when I'm asked for my opinion on something, sometimes I'll go, I just don't have enough information for that. And I'm not just going to throw out this wild hot take or reckon to get a soundbite in the news. Uh, but then- Thank you for that, just for the record. Yeah. <laughs> I'm very grateful. Yeah, I mean, we try, you know. Um, and then there's also this other thing where I think that my role um, in this job is, you know, obviously I do as best as I possibly can as myself, but I think it's to do more than just occupy this space as me. It's to attempt to create changes within the institution or at least hold this space um, hold the door a little bit more ajar so that the next people who are slightly different or more out the gate than myself or definitely everybody else in parliament can come through. Um, and I kind of uh, have said that a few times, you know, like I am not in parliament to hold up those marble walls. I'm there to knock them down in a way that more people get to see that this place is not flawless. We all, we all already knew that, but we hold this massive cognitive dissonance where politicians are supposed to pretend that they are like this deeply professional facade, but then we're also like, you're all cooked and we don't really like you. So why don't we attempt to bridge that gap and go, actually, these are people who we're talking about. We should expect them to be people and we need more good people in there. Mm. Yeah. Um my last thing is when I kind of came out and said I was depressed and was doing a podcast, I had created this huge beast of what that Facebook post would look like and how it would be received. You know, I'm a, went to a private school, white girl who's pursuing acting in Hollywood. Like I had already said all the horrible things to myself being like, no, I'm having a hard time. And, you know, I was actually met with a, a huge sense of um, <clears throat> community outreach and love and um, and uh, overwhelming sense of joy from people of going like, thank you for doing that. Thanks for making a resource that I was so overwhelmed by this fact and then felt like such a dick because I was like, well, I should have just said something sooner, like rather than <laughs> all these years wasted in torment. Mm. Mm. And it was really heartbreaking to hear that your experience of speaking about stuff was not as pleasant as mine. And I'm sorry for that. And that fucking sucks. And uh, I just, yeah, just wanted to, to hope that you know that that's not cool. <laughs> um, yeah. And, then, yeah, and just see how that has affected your, you know, whether your trepidation to speak more or whether mm. you're resilient enough to, to dive in and, just because yeah. I think such a fear of people, no matter what age, of coming out and saying I'm not doing okay, mm. created a stigma around that as a society, as a culture, as a family, whatever it is. So I just, as someone who had the opposite experience, to speak to that. Yeah, so it's, I mean, totally interesting, right? Because the reception that I had from um, a whole bunch of people who typically email me their gripes or otherwise, and kind of this um, big outpouring of people who were just really angry at the fact that that's what a politician could be. How dare you expose that veneer? <laughs> you know, how dare you take off your armor for a second and be a vulnerable human being? And it's just that cognitive dissonance, again, that I think we hold, where we expect our politicians to be perfect and flawless but we also really deep down know they're not so I think that um that was the mainstream kind of reception 
but that wasn't the people who I was doing it for. Um, I was doing it for the people who don't see that kind of stuff happening in politics. And those are the people whose voices really mattered in um, kind of coming back to me. Uh, so whilst, you know, definitely had a, a big pushback, there was a huge amount of support from people who said, I've never seen anything like this kind of happen in politics and I didn't expect it. Um, and kind of, I guess, on top of all of those other characteristics that you kind of alluded to uh, that are public about who I am and, you know, uh, that I, I don't really fit the box. Like I'm a high school dropout with tattoos who swears too much. Like I'm not supposed to occupy this space. Um, it meant something. And, you know, as Gauri's um, Gutterman says, you know, my colleague, uh, and she's like the first refugee member of parliament and often gets critiqued for, you know, attempting to weaponize um, and, you know, her, uh, the people who are kind of conspiratorial about her and particularly the Greens, but that she is supposedly, you know, attempting to weaponize her identity. She just says, you know, like, I can't shed my skin. Like, this is who I am. Um, and I bring that perspective to what I'm doing. And I feel really privileged to have come to politics with my eyes wide open about the challenge that was in front of me. And I just hope that continuing to normalize these really difficult, pressing, but necessary conversations inside the parliamentary sphere changes that conversation so that the next lot of people who end up coming through don't have to come up against those same barriers. So I feel lucky in that, to be honest. You're awesome. No, you're awesome. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pretty Depressed. A huge thanks to Action Park Media, our executive producer, Kevin Connolly, and our epic crew, Raul, Kevin, and Narod. Make sure you subscribe and give us a good rating and review so we can keep bringing you more epic chats in the future. Cheers. Cheers.